Welcome to GradCast. On this podcast, I uncover all the do's and don'ts of being an APS grad and the tips and insights you need to know to get the most out of your grad year. This time on GradCast, we learn how the Australian Public Service is improving accessibility for people with neurodivergence. For a lot of people, they might think that reasonable adjustments does just relate to very, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, physical disabilities or rather than invisible ones. And perhaps a lot of managers won't realise that there are things that they can offer to their staff as part of reasonable adjustments that will help them be included in the workplace. And the services that are available to help neurodivergent people enter the APS workforce. My firm's just uh, running one. We've got a three-year uh, program that we're running with Home Affairs called Apollo and um, we're hiring 10 people a year for three years. Um, They are in IT, but they're not all technical. So they're going to be across all sorts of different roles. That's just a taste of what's to come. Let's get right into it. I'm joined today by two experts on neurodiversity in our studio. First, we have Robin Edmonds, who's the Assistant Director of the Media Reform Branch at the Department of Infrastructure, but she's also the co-founder of Neurodiversity Community of Practice. Also joining our conversation, we have David Smith, who is an autism and neurodiversity employment specialist and advocate with his own business called Employee for Ability. David and Robin, welcome to Gradcast. How do you feel about being on the podcast today? Oh, excited. Looking forward to the opportunity to talk to you today, Cal. Yeah, very excited to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you both. Uh, Now, for our GradCast listeners, um, it's possible we may not have heard the term neurodiversity until today, so it might be good to start by defining what that means. Robin, how would you describe neurodiversity? Now, I just want to make, of course, a usual disclaimer. This is very much a definition that is live at the moment. But when we talk about neurodiversity, we are talking about the range of differences in individual brain function and behavioural traits that are regarded as part of normal variation in the human population. So neurodiversity as a term refers to the full range of differences and how we all process information differently. Neurodivergent specifically refers to those who do identify with a particular neurological subtype. So that may include autism, ADHD or ADD, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia and, and many others as this conversation evolves. So yeah, please note this isn't an exhaustive definition, but hopefully a helpful starting point. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. David, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, my, from my perspective, it's a, um, it's a new term, um, but it's looking at the strengths or rather than looking at the medical model of disability that somebody has a condition or a problem, it's looking at the social model of you know, what are individual strengths and how do we remove barriers so they can play to their strengths. Yeah. So it's a living new term. So there's no probably standard definition yet and every department that's looking at neurodiversity hiring programs um, will have their idea of what they're considering. But um, it, I think it's a good uh, growth from just being an autism focus. Yeah. Uh, I might just build on that as well, because talking about the social model, I think it's great to introduce that. And disability is a term in general. I think people conflate neurodiversity and disability a lot, but these are not mutually inclusive or exclusive terms. And disability itself is more than just specific conditions. Everyone can be impacted differently by the same condition. It's really a dynamic interaction between someone's personal situation, their health, their activities and their environment especially things like community attitudes or opportunities, the services and the assistance that they can access. So 
You know, whether someone is restricted from participation in the workplace may be defined by whether or not those accommodations are available, not their condition, right? And this is the whole premise of the human rights model of disability and the social model of disability, that, in fact, these accommodations should be available by default to enable people to access their right to equal participation at work and, and in society. Yeah, thank you both for that. Um, and, yeah, fascinating to hear just how much, I guess, that's, that's growing even currently, um, sort of the understanding and, and discourse around that. Um, David, you're an autism and neurodiversity employment specialist and advocate. Can you tell me uh, briefly what you do and why neurodiversity is a particular in area of interest for you? So um, neurodiversity sort of came to me as a light bulb moment. I was uh, studying at Oxford Uni doing the Advanced Management Leadership Program in 2016 and I'd seen, um, before it came to Australia, Employable Me on the BBC and I'd been in tech recruitment for 20 years and my youngest son, Ollie's on the autism spectrum and I thought, well, um, I'm in recruitment, my son's autistic, um, there's a massive problem with finding pathways to work, so if I don't get involved, who will? Um, so I came back from that program and went and studied at Griffith Uni, on, did some postgrad studies on autism and research on autism and anxiety, and decided that this was my social purpose. So we started the business in 2019 and um, it keeps growing, so yeah. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I was just hearing before, yeah, it's like in several states in Australia and it's, it's growing quite a lot. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we've got staff um, in Sydney. Uh, we've got a consulting practice that works with federal government and corporates on neurodiversity awareness training. Um, we run neurodiversity recruitment programs. Uh, we've got one running at the moment with Home Affairs called Apollo. And um, we run in Canberra and Geelong um, uh, school leavers programs for people with NDIS funding, which is about equipping young adults to become job ready, but also how to sustain employment, so keep a job. So, yeah, so it's covering both aspects, um, helping managers learn how to manage neurodivergent conditions and, and their staff and play to their strengths, and also coaching young people um, so they get the job ready skills that are designed around their neurodivergence. Thanks, David. Uh, and Robin, can you tell me about your work at the Department of Infrastructure um, and why is neurodiversity a particular area of interest for you? Hmm. So like many uh, female or, or AFAB uh, people, I was diagnosed with uh, autism and ADHD very much later in life. Um, and I think in the you know several decades that sort of preceded that, I had spent a lifetime wondering, you know, why is it that some people really seem to struggle with, you know, getting communication? And after learning five languages and getting a master's degree in strategic communications, I figured out that actually I wasn't the problem um, and that maybe it was time that we opened up the conversation to make, you know, communication and, and communities a little bit more inclusive. So obviously I have a personal interest in it. Um, uh, and also, so my previous role at PMNC was working in, in inclusion and diversity and across a lot of um, that sort of employment conditions, which was really interesting and valuable. And also, I think the, the staff led side. So with my colleague, Andrew Pfeiffer, we established the APS wide community of practice only last year. Gosh, it feels like it was longer ago than that. Uh, and really, we just wanted to get some agencies together to talk about what they were doing, to start to share resources and information to make some of the work on, on neurodiversity inclusion in the APS a bit more, you know, efficient, centralised, uh, stop reinventing the wheel as well. 
And instead of being a few people coming along to a conversation to share ideas, we had over 165 people from more than 36 different federal agencies attending. And we had, you know, a wait list an arm long and we had a, a, a number of, of SES, including Secretary Gordon de Brower, in fact, speaking at our first event. So we realised that uh, we were maybe we were onto a good thing, that this is the time, I think, to start having that conversation. So um, agencies are keen to get that information to find out how they can support their staff and to find out where their staff are. So big project for us last year was also getting a new question uh, included on the APS census this year. So talking about whether or not staff identify as neurodivergent. And I think this is going to be the start of a much more productive conversation in the APS about identifying some more of the diversity that we have within our ranks and how we can start to support them. Mm. How exciting. There's so much happening in the APS space. It's mm. really cool. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, once we start getting a bit of that data, it helps us have, yeah, have more meaningful conversations, such as how many, you know, should we start to separate the conversation about disability and neurodiversity and start to focus on that, that strengths focus that you were talking about before. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, David, a question for you. Um, what sort of work do people with neurodivergence thrive at? Um, and are they're different, are they different across different types of neurodiversity? So there's lots of stereotypes about um, what jobs people can do, but the reality is it playing to people's strengths. Um, people with a diagnosis of um, any neurodivergent condition can actually do any type of job. So um, there is a stereotype because early programs in the APS were in IT that um, I, somebody with an autism diagnosis is naturally good at IT, but with our clients that we work with um, predominantly in Canberra, um, less than 20% of our clients are interested in STEM. Um, more than 30% of our clients are creatives. So they're interested in art, music, um, drawing and being creative. So you know, there is no um, stereotype. We'd rather focus on what their strengths are. And sometimes young adults don't know what their strengths are. And the degree that they've studied at uni may not end up being what their career pathway is. That you know, we found some people who might have done biology or humanities and they're amazing at data analytics. But there's no stereotype. It's about trying to work out what your strengths are, what you're good at, and then follow a pathway into a job um, that plays to your strengths. But what helps neurodivergent people is having coaching. So having support so that they understand what reasonable adjustments they need, but probably more importantly is teaching their managers um, what the individual's strengths are and then how to manage that neurodivergent brain because they're not going to do things the same as their neurotypical colleagues. They're going to think outside the box and sometimes thinking outside the box is actually the superpower that can give you a competitive advantage in your organisation. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, so the strengths aren't necessarily defined by neurodivergence, but they're going to be different for individuals. It, and it will depend. Like um, some younger adults don't know what their strengths are, um, whereas somebody in their 30s will know through success and failure what has worked and what's not worked for them. So, you know, like any condition everyone's going to be different. Um, there's a saying in the autism sector that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Like, we're all different, same as the three of us are all completely different people. Um, our brains work differently. We've got different hobbies and interests and passions. Um, that's the same for people who have a diagnosis. They're 
just the same as everyone else, just as capable of performing um, and achieving amazing results. But some of them need a little bit of coaching, but more importantly, some of their managers need a little bit of coaching. Yeah, thanks, David. I really, I just wanted to pick up, I loved what you said about the fact that it's not just about what they do, but how they do it. And I think having the flexibility to let people do things in the way that suits them and their working styles is, you know, that's the next step of inclusion and flexibility for the APS. I think that is so important. Yeah. Mm. I think, yeah, earlier you spoke about the the APS census or the, the survey that they do every few years. And one of the interesting things from a few years ago is that, you know, in the anonymous section of those surveys, you know, about 8% of the APS will identify as having some type of disability and in the identifiable section it was less than 3%. And there's a degree of trust or mistrust because of that difference. So the more conversations we have about um, neurodiversity, that it is just part of the normal variation of the human population, um, the more that individuals are going to feel trust and disclose their condition but it'll be amazing in 10 years' time that you don't have to disclose. Mm. Your brain is just accepted for what it is and the reasonable adjustments that people need are just part of the reasonable adjustments that all staff need. And in my experience, when we do a neurodiversity passport for a, a worker with their manager, the manager will go, huh, these adjustments are actually very simple and they're quite reasonable and many of my other staff would benefit from these too. Um, so I think it's moving the conversation from disability to inclusion so that we just create a more open, um, accepting workplace that difference is just understood and accepted rather than being some sort of um, negative. Mm. Yeah, inclusion by design and inclusion by default because, yeah, it truly does benefit everyone. I'm Cal Merving and this is Grantcast with Robin Edmonds and David Smith. Uh, Robin, what steps are the APS taking to make the workforce more accessible for people with neurodivergence, autism, ADHD, dyslexia? Yeah, so I think that is a really good question. It, it's great to see that this conversation is taking place in the APS now. Some of the programs that have been around for a few years have been really focused on disability. So if you think about affirmative measures, recruitment, for example, it's 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 in the name. Uh, but we are starting to see that that broaden out and, and there are a few other programs that people can start to, to access. Things like career starter programs and then some of the programs that David will mention as well as different recruitment pathways I think are important. But in addition, some more of the work that the APSC is doing around things like disability passports and around inclusion are, I think, becoming more universal. They're becoming more inclusive. Reasonable adjustments as well, that's something that we talk about a lot. And I think for a lot of people, they might think that reasonable adjustments does just relate to very... uh, perhaps, uh, you know, physical disabilities or rather than invisible ones. And perhaps a lot of managers won't realise that there are things that they can offer to their staff as part of reasonable adjustments that will help them be included in the workplace. So this is probably the question I get asked most often, uh, to be honest, is what kind of adjustments can I ask for or what kind of adjustments can I offer to my staff? Uh, and, and there's quite a lot of things in the office that you can think of. Obviously, we talk about flexible work a lot because of the impact that can have on 
you know, managing physical and mental conditions and mental health and stress and a whole lot of other things that are fantastic. But uh, there are also things within the office, such as requesting the, the lighting in your work area to be dimmed, for example, being able to wear noise-cancelling headphones in the workplace, uh, sitting in a corner or, or having a quiet area, um, uh, and, and also smaller things just around perhaps how you how often you're in the office or, or how you're communicating with people at work. So if you have trouble with auditory processing and you might make a really specific request that if someone is tasking you with something, you would really appreciate that in an email. So maybe you'll have a conversation and just make it known, particularly with your manager, that you want a follow-up email that, that really articulates that. There, there are a lot of really little things that often cost us nothing that, that can really support uh, neurodiversity in the workplace as well. So some of the, um, I suppose, other reasonable adjustments that a grad might want um, when they're applying for a grad program, um, really simple reasonable adjustment might be, can I have the interview questions in advance of my interview? Um, can I um, have an advocate sit next to me during my interview? Um, might be, you know, once you've started work, can you vary your hours of work? Can you start a little bit later? Um, some of our clients might... Um, need to do reduced hours to scaffold into work that they might do Monday, Tuesday, have Wednesday off to recover and do Thursday, Friday, and they might do that for two months and then scaffold up um, from, you know, maybe they're doing six hours a day for four days and then six hours for five days or just scaffolding towards um, full-time. Just some of the things that the APS will offer um, if you ask. And um, some other reasonable adjustments, um, I think we've covered was noise cancelling headphones, but it might be a workstation assessment, but it's not just looking at the physical aspects. It might be looking at um, the, the ambience around it. It might be looking at, from a sensory perspective, what are the things that are causing you anxiety or causing a sensory overload? And providing those reasonable adjustments are pretty simple and job access provides them through funding. So if there is a physical need in terms of spending money to provide a reasonable adjustment, um, the government provides that through job access. Awesome. Um, and can you tell us about any organisations or services that might um, help people with neurodiversity who are working or thinking about working in the APS? So there's a few programs that the APS is running um, or individual agencies are running for specific neurodiversity hiring and traditionally many of them were just focused on autism but in the last 12 months they've started to expand that you know if you have a diagnosed neurodivergent condition like the ones we've listed before sort of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, any of those types of condition and you've got evidence to, to, to show that you have that condition, then applying for programs at Services Australia, they run a program. Um, the ATO's got a great program. DSS has run one. Um, my firm's just uh, running one. We've got a three-year uh, program that we're running with Home Affairs called Apollo, and um, we're hiring 10 people a year for three years. Um, they are in IT, but they're not all technical. So they're going to be across all sorts of different roles. And um, we've just placed our first cohort just, just commencing. And um, the program was not just interviews. In fact, there really was no interview. It was all about um, using projects or simulated activity to showcase your strength rather than interviews because interviews measure social and communication skills, which unfortunately tends to be an area that's not the strength of many of our clients. Um, so... 
we did I did a program with the ACT Public Service um, 18 months ago where it was just for neurodivergent um, applicants in justice and community safety. And they interviewed the five candidates and all five did really badly at the interview. They all had the interview questions the day before. They had some coaching with me. And the young man who came fifth out of the interview process ended up getting the job because we did a simulation of here's a bunch of data. It was a data analytics role. Um, go away. You've got 24 hours and produce a report based on the data. He did it in six hours and it was amazing. And the panel said we would never have hired him through our normal process because he was really bad at the interview. Um, he's been there now 18 months. He's been promoted um, and he's you know, showed them how good he is at his job and given his uh, director new ideas how to present data in a you know, more accessible way. So there's interesting programs out there that um, try and remove the, the, the negative aspects of the process, which usually is an interview, um, and try and make that more accessible. That's a fantastic story. That's really cool. Can you tell us a, a bit more about, you've mentioned your business, Employee for Ability. Um, can you tell us um, what are you guys doing specifically to help people with neurodivergence working in the APS? Yeah, so Employee for Ability um, really has two aspects. One is working with young um, job seekers to help them build the, the, the work-ready skills so that they can communicate more effectively, have their executive functioning skills so they're better being organised, really teaching them adulting skills of how to apply uh, for jobs. But it's then giving them coaching and confidence to try and build their confidence and we use work experience as the pathway. So they can go and try jobs because a lot of our clients don't know what their strengths are. So they can try different types of jobs to see what works for them and it's like all job seekers is you've got to have a CV um, as well as education to get into a grad program. So if you've got a great ATAR and you go to uni and you get a good GPA, um, doesn't mean you're going to get into a grad program. You've got to have some work experience. So, you know, that might be at McDonald's, um, that you've worked at McDonald's through uni or you've worked in a bar through uni and you've developed some people skills. So we're basically doing that for neurodivergent people is helping them build a CV, build confidence so that when they get to that graduate stage and they're looking for a levelling up job, um, they've got the confidence to go for it. So we provide that coaching. And then the other part of our business is providing the coaching for the managers. So we build a neurodiversity passport for um, job seekers. So rather than focusing on disability passports, we're focusing on neurodiversity because I think they're different and showing managers what the strengths of the individual are rather than what their deficits are. And it might be simple things like you need to have a meeting with this person every week. And the purpose of the meeting is so that they've got a chance to self-advocate and um, ask questions. And the meeting needs to have a structure. So you need an agenda. And if a reasonable adjustment might be from that meeting, the manager wants that worker to do three or four activities for the week, put it in writing so that they don't just remember the first point and the last point that you gave them. So it's just providing those simple structures that works for that individual so that it removes the anxiety around the meeting, but the structure helps the manager too. So they get more produ productivity from their worker. Mm. As a, um, one of the little projects that we've shared a lot through the uh, community of practice is a conversation guide that I put together, which was just when I got really, really sick of doing all of the, um, I won't call them out, but 
particular personality assessment types with lots of acronyms that, you know, compare you to various types of fruit or what have you. Um, and, we, yeah, we really wanted a way to simplify the conversation that neurodivergent staff and all staff are having with their managers. And, yeah, exactly as you say, really it can, can be distilled down to a few questions. But we, we often don't ask them because we assume that our experience is the default. And as soon as you assume that, then you know that you're you're really kind of blind to, I guess, what other people's experience might be and what their needs are. So when you take that out of the equation and you ask questions like, how do you like to receive feedback? That's a, a really big one. It can help people who have social anxiety, for example. Uh, also, yeah, how do you like to be communicated with? What are your best hours for work? Uh, particularly with perhaps medication. There are times that are better and worse throughout the day and times when they just need to log off. Uh, yeah, a few of these questions, if you just sort of take them out of context, can really, really facilitate, I think, that. As well as the hardware that we talked about, there's a variety of software that can be great for people who are neurodiverse. So that can include things like break software to remind people as someone with ADHD, uh, you know, to take breaks to help with that. There's also uh, text-to-speech dictation software, which is super helpful for uh, dyslexia, a whole variety of those things. You can download custom dyslexia fonts, which are really helpful for people. Uh, remembering to turn on things like uh, captioning for people with auditory processing disorder uh, and a variety of other things that can just help with the uh, sort of sensory overload that David was talking about as well, things like screen glare protectors to just to pop on your work screens as well. So, yeah, a number of options. I suppose one of the other things I wanted to talk about was um, we've been trained through our lives to judge behaviour and to judge people and how they communicate. And one of the challenges with neurodivergent conditions is that if you're just judging the behaviour of someone and not asking yourself why, why did they behave this way? What was the antecedent or what was the thing that happened before the behaviour that you're seeing? We're sort of doing ourselves a disservice that we need to understand why people communicate the way we do and not judge somebody who's having a really bad day. So if someone's having a really bad day, um, ask yourself why. It might be something that was really, really simple that you did as a manager that an example I had two weeks ago was one of my clients um, was desperately keen to talk to their manager every fortnight. There'd been a whole heap of issues at work that they needed to raise and the boss got gazumped by their exec and had to cancel the meeting and go and see their SES and the poor worker had a meltdown. And people judged the worker because she had a meltdown. Um, the reason why she had the meltdown was the meeting that she'd been desperate to have got cancelled. So you know, a reasonable adjustment could have been, um, I can't have the meeting with you now, but can we catch up tomorrow morning? Um, so if the manager knew how important that was, then they would have been able to reschedule it or do it earlier in the day and provide some clarity for that worker. And it would have reduced the likelihood of that behaviour occurring. So we're too easy at judging or too quick to judge um, people and not understand why people communicate the way they do. And all of us at some stage in our life are going to experience anxiety, depression and trauma and we need to be kind to each other. That brings really nicely to my next question, which is, yeah, what are just some key considerations that people can have uh, to be more aware when working with um, someone who has neurodivergence? So I think building a little on what I said before, just start to undo your assumptions, right? Start to ask questions. Uh, and perhaps one of the ways that I like to do that, just to build on the list that we've been building, is 
identify what unspoken rules you might have in your organisation. You know, really think about it. What's written in the employment policies and what is it that you expect? If you have a flexible work ban between 7 and 7, are you going to be okay with staff rocking up between 11 and 7? Or is there an unspoken rule that you expect them to be there between sort of 9 and 5 if, if that's not an operational requirement? Is there a uniform requirement or is there perhaps a dress code that is not necessarily in writing? Uh, and, you know, will someone who is new to the APS or even new to employment know that? Can you can you just help them on their journey? Uh, I think it's always better to, to, to check twice than never, right? You know, if somebody has that information, then that's perfectly fine. You don't need to go into detail. But I don't think there's any harm in always checking with people. Hey, are you familiar? Have you done this before? Just offer information to people so they don't feel that the onus is always on them to ask, especially if it's information they might not realise that they're missing. Uh, they're, they're very good points. And that concept of assumption that a lot of neurotypical people um, know the unwritten rules of the workplace mm. and they'll call it common sense. And it's yeah. like, well, we all know what it is. And it's like, well, it's just not right and not true that, yeah. you know, assumptions are, you know, are not factual and if you have an autistic brain, then you need to know what the rules are. So we've built a program called Work Ready, which basically talks about the unwritten rules of work and it prepares somebody who's going into, say, home affairs or in the APS with some of the APS rules that are less obvious, like the ones we just said. But at the end of the day, it's um, writing things down, providing clarity so that, you know, not just people with an autism or an ADHD diagnosis, but all um, APS know what the rules are. And one of the great things about neurodivergent people is they're probably going to read all the induction material, they're going to find all the spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes, but they're going to read everything because they genuinely want to do a great job. And and we'll find that they have high retention rates and they do outperform their peers. And um, I know some neurotypical people get a little bit upset by that, but um, a lot of neurodivergent talent in the APS um, outperform because when they're supported really well um, by a great manager and some coaching to help them, once they feel safe, then they've got no need to, to move on. Um, they'll seek promotion and they will deliver a great job. But it comes from providing structure and support so that they can succeed and um, which graduate doesn't need a little bit of coaching. I think all graduates need some coaching and it just makes common sense. That's common sense. So that makes sense. I think that's something that uh, Lee Steele brought up on our last podcast as well, you know, is that there's, you know, there's a role for managers in finding new ways for their staff to succeed and in looking at what different leadership could look like, both in themselves and in others. Just remember that the merit principle is is about finding people who can do the the objective of the role. It's not about finding people who are going to do it exactly the same way as the person before them. So, yeah, I think managers really have a strong role there as well in terms of let themselves think outside the box and think, well, if this could be done any way at all, what is it ultimately that we're just trying to achieve? And then you can bring in all the strengths of your diverse workforce. And in addition to the fact that they do outperform, having a neurodiverse team that is a mix of neurodivergent and, and different types of t neurotypes, everyone becomes more productive. 
retention improves for everyone uh, as well as morale and, and innovation, importantly. Innovation and creativity goes through the roof. So uh, there's benefits for everybody when you think about, you know, making sure that the systems are not just including one member of your team but letting everyone work together. Fantastic. David and Robin, this has been a, a really great conversation. I want to thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts and, and really insightful and interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you and thanks, David. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that was a fascinating conversation with Robin and David. There was so much that I learned and, yeah, really fantastic to hear, I guess, how much is already happening within the APS um, to increase accessibility for people with neurodivergence. Um, yeah, just how many sort of interesting like, and really important strengths that people with neurodivergence bring to the APS and how that can actually help whole teams work together more efficiently. After we finished our main recording, we actually had a bit more of a conversation about how ChatGPT can help people with neurodivergence um, preparing for interviews and preparing to get a job in the APS. Uh, those are really interesting conversations, so we're going to play a bit of that now. I think most agencies don't um, let you use ChatGPT, <laughs> but we've been teaching applicants yeah. to, if you, a lot of people who have um, writer's block, mm. yeah, they're writing their application going, what do I mm. write here? It's like, put it in ChatGPT, um, yeah. it will give you a skeleton. Yep. So it, instead of a white piece of paper, you've now got a piece of paper with ideas on it. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the ideas will be okay, some of them won't be, yeah. but then you've got to tailor it to you. Yeah. So you've got to make it yours yeah. um, because it'll be quite American in flavour yeah. and, and tone. So mm. if you do that, well, all of a sudden you've got a skeleton to work with. Mm. And the people we've coached with, and, you know, if you're scoring it out of five, yeah. you know, they, they the baseline of doing that will give them a three and a half, four. Yeah. And if they polish it, they've got a five out of five. Yeah. So they'll get an interview. And we're starting to see people get interviews. Now, yeah. you know, you can't use ChatGPT in every department, yeah. but yeah. there's some pretty cool AI tools. There's one oh, called yeah. Goblin AI tools. I don't know really? if you've seen that. Well, it, I haven't seen that one yet. It, it, you can write an email, put it into Goblin, and it'll, it'll make it more formal. Or oh, really? you can, okay. you, can uh, oh, yeah. you can put what ingredients you've got in your fridge and it'll tell you what to cook for dinner. That's and there's good. some people who've had Grammarly that they use at work. Uh, and the other yeah. one is just the Microsoft accessibility checker that you can yeah. get on Look, almost I, every program. Now. I used Grammarly when I was doing my research degree and yeah. it was pretty good. Um, it made things, but I, I wish I'd had GPT yeah. when yeah. I was doing my, my thesis because yeah. that would have made life so much easier. <laughs> Uh, that's it for this episode, but if you'd like to see more Grandcast content, you can check out our socials at Grandcast on LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok. Grandcast is a production by Content Group sponsored by the Commonwealth Superannuation Corporation, CSC. And we'll be back soon with more stories, tips, and insights. Thanks for tuning in, and bye for now. Bye.